I'll be in the book of 1 Peter this weekend, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we'll be together. Uh, if you've been around Fellowship of the Rockies for some time, you know that whenever I come and teach, I've been teaching kind of the sermon series on the side through the book of 1 Peter, and I started doing that around February or so, and so you can give yourself a pat on the back. We're like officially halfway through the book. We're, 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 making, we're making our way here. Um, Whenever we come to scripture like this, we're jumping right into the middle of a thought process, all right? So in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, we're going to start in verse 13, and we'll read it here in a few moments, but Peter is in the middle of a thought process, okay? And so each time we come back to the scripture, we've got to remind ourselves where we've been and what Peter is trying to accomplish, and he is trying to accomplish a lot of things in this letter, and here's why. It's super expensive to write letters in his day. You can't just like grab a piece of parchment and go scrabble on it and send it to somebody. It's actually really expensive to write letters for him. And so whenever he wrote a letter, he had to make sure he, he had the good stuff getting sent out, okay? So you're getting his A1 teaching, his, all of his ideas put together in summary form. So he's saying a lot of deep things in a very short way. So that's why sometimes letters like this feel really like dense. Uh, that's because they had to really be prepped to write what they were going to write in this day and this time. And so that's why it seems like he's transitioning between ideas so quickly. But a lot of the times, uh, letters like this were structured in a way that they would introduce kind of all the ideas that they would walk through in the beginning of the letter, in the first couple verses of the letter. And then over the letter, they would kind of expound on the ideas. And so there's one piece of this letter that Peter mentions in the first chapter. He starts talking about the various trials that the people he's writing to are walking through. He's writing to persecuted Christians. He's writing to suffering Christians, and that's the idea that he picks up on and, and begins to address in the first chapter. He talks about suffering, the various trials these people are facing, but instead of just like giving them a one, two, three bullet point type thing to deal with suffering in their, in their life, in their context, he actually leads them in building a theology, okay? He leads them to build a process for who they are and, and rooting them in, in the truths of Scripture so that they would be able to deal with the suffering in their life, and so that's why Peter begins talking about suffering, and then he begins to walk through the reminders of the rest of Scripture. He reminds them, you have a living hope in Christ, which is what we're going to talk about with our time this morning, is this living hope of Jesus and how you have a new identity and a new hope and a new family that you're invited into. And this new family is built together to walk as a community on the road from hope to holiness. We're all being sanctified together by the Spirit himself. All right, and then he uh, begins to give identifiers of what it means to follow and walk alongside Jesus, how disciples are spiritual stones being built to be spiritual temples in order to offer spiritual sacrifices, right? And that is just simply our worship towards him. And he reminds them that they are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation and a holy nation. The same reminders he gives us today. That's part of our living hope is the identity we have in Christ. And then beyond that, he, beget, he becomes more practical. And so he starts talking about this discipline of submission and how there's a relationship in every one of our lives that we should be practicing submission in, giving up the, the fact that, or this deep desire to have our own way. Uh, when we follow Jesus, when we trust in the cross of Christ, when we trust in his ministry and what he's doing in our lives, we no longer have to white knuckle grip life. We don't have to do that anymore. We can practice submission because we trust in the Lord. And then that leads him into the harmony of the church of believers. And he talks about how we are committed to a higher virtue. We are committed to the life of Christ. We're all playing the same harmony all the way throughout scripture. And so he builds all of these ideas together to give you a framework for who you are in Christ and how we're called to live in Christ. And that's when he begins to speak into the issue of their day, which is suffering. 
Because in order to understand our suffering or in, in order to um, be, be, in order to like come to a place where we can fight against it and, and learn how to live through it, we have to understand who we are. We have to have this deep theology, this well of knowledge of who God is so that we can fight against suffering and so that we can live through our suffering in this world, in this life. And so with, with most of the rest of Peter's letter, he's going to be talking about suffering and dealing with that in our lives. And he has a few different kind of key points for how we, how we walk through suffering in our lives. Two really specific ones is, the first one is remember your hope. Remember your living hope, and that's the one we're going to talk about a lot today. And the other is act like Jesus. So there are a couple situations here that Peter speaks into. He says, if you're persecuted for doing good, act like Jesus and remember your hope. If you're persecuted for simply being a Christian, act like you are one, act like Jesus, and remember your hope. And then the third one he kind of mentions is the end of the world is coming. Even in this day, in his day, Peter is writing these things. The end is coming so figure out what the answer is to all the conspiracy theories. No. He says, act like Jesus. Remember your hope. The world is coming to a close. Act like Jesus. Remember your hope. And that's what I want to encourage you with this weekend. That's what I want to uh, remind you of is this living hope that we have. So let me fall into 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll read verses 13 through 17 together. This is what it sounds like. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter's first reminder here in these verses is this reminder that even though we go through suffering, we still have hope. We have a living hope. We are not doing this on our own. Whatever various trials we walk through in his day or in our day, we don't do this without hope. We have a hope to lean on. And this hope is based on what Jesus has done and what Jesus came to create. It's also based in our future, all right? This, this hope we look back on, we look back on the work of Christ, and we just sang about it in worship that Jesus has given a sacrifice for us to unleash his grace to each and every one of us. That gives us hope. His life, death, and resurrection, his, his words and his work, all of who Jesus was, provides hope for us because we can become a part of the new humanity that he came to bring. That's the hope we look back on. We look back to those ideas for our hope, but it also paints a picture of where we are going. I couldn't be more excited to teach uh, about this a little bit this morning, but, but this living hope, it gives us fresh vision. Living hope gives us fresh vision. It gives us fresh vision for what our future is supposed to be, who we're supposed to become, who we're even trying to be. All of those things are shaped by the living hope that Christ has given us. I gave a definition of hope this last week in my sermon out of Nehemiah, um, and, and it's interesting sometimes how, how one sermon will prep you for the next, but, but I didn't get to talk specifically about the hope. I just kind of gave a definition, and, and we kind of went our separate way with the Nehemiah story, uh, but I'd love to share this definition again with you from Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher. He says that hope is the anticipation of good not yet here. 
Hope is the anticipation of good, not yet here. Now, uh, I understand that like this could be, oh, well, like, duh, okay? I understand what hope is. It's like hoping that something good happens. Sure. Uh, but, but when we come to the idea of living hope, we have to begin to actually define some terms here. We actually have to begin to ask ourselves some deeper questions because if hope is just simply the anticipation of good not yet here, we have to ask ourselves, what's the good that we're anticipating? What's the good that we want to happen in our life? What are we putting our hope in, right? If we're putting our hope in the good that we're anticipating, what is that good? And if we have a a worldly view uh, of everything that's going on in our world, if we have just a very secular view of our world, then then it's kind of predictable what we would say the good that we're anticipating in our life is. It's that cash money, right? It's, It's the next paycheck. It's the next raise we get at work. Maybe it's the next job. We always say the grass is greener on the other side. And we pretty much believe that, I I think, as a culture and as a society. That's not always the truth, but that is generally the good that we anticipate in our lives. Maybe it's a new relationship, something that's going to be like fresh and reinvigorating for our lives. And we put our hope in these things, the good that we're anticipating in our world. And you know what? It's depicted a lot in in history and storytelling and folklore and in art all over the place that sometimes the good that we anticipate most, the good that we put our hope in the most, is not always what's best for us. It's not always what's best for us. This is depicted really well in the book, The Pearl. Okay, The Pearl is written by a man named John Steinbeck. He's an American writer. He released this book uh, through a newsletter publication in like the 1940s. Uh, I read this book this last week. Um... It was technically the second time I read it, but the first time I read it was Spark Notes, and I was in the 10th grade in a literature class. So I've read it like one and a half times, maybe. But this book really depicts uh, this idea really well of sometimes the good that we hope in the most isn't always what's best for us. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story of the pearl, and so spoiler alert for you who haven't read it, and and if you don't know the story of the pearl, it's kind of your fault because you didn't pay attention in 10th grade literature class. So here's the story of the pearl. It's about a fisherman uh, living in La Paz, Mexico, and his name is Kino. Kino is a fisherman there, and he has almost nothing. He lives in a, in a reed and grass hut. He lives by the sea. He, he goes out and he, and he fishes for everything that he has to feed his family, things like that. He has no money, he has nothing. Um, but actually, the, the story kind of depicts him in the beginning as actually having everything because he has the song of the family is kind of what it's referenced is a theme that runs through the story is the song of the family and the song of the family is Kino's heartbeat and it's his wife's heartbeat and it's his son's heartbeat that's all that he has it's all that he needs all right his wife and his son okay and so what happens is uh, his son the boy Coyotito he gets uh, stung by a scorpion he gets poisoned by a scorpion and so uh, Kino and his wife take his boy to the doctor of the village, uh, and this man is kind of racist towards him, basically, and doesn't accept his form of payment. And so Kino goes, uh, he, he realizes that he's going to have to find a way to pay for his son to be saved, and so he goes back to the sea that he lives beside, and he goes diving for pearls in order to get the money to save his son, basically. And lo and behold, he finds the Pearl of the World, which is actually the original name of the publication itself. It was called the Pearl of the World. That's what he finds there in the water, and he opens up the shell, 
and, and he looks into the pearl, and it's large, and it's beautiful, and it's the most pure uh, piece of jewelry or anything that anyone has ever seen in their city, and they all call it the pearl of the world. It's, it's amazing, and it changes the, the landscape of his life, truly. And there are two scenes in the book where, where Kino looks into the pearl, and he begins to envision his future. He sees visions of his future, and the first time he does this is with uh, his villagers and with his family right there. They're all kind of surrounded around this pearl, and they know that it could change even the whole village's future. And he, Kino looks into the pearl, and he sees a few things. First, he sees him and his wife with money. They have new clothing, and they can finally afford to be married, is what he says. We'll have a wedding. We'll be able to pay for that. The second thing he sees is his son, his little baby boy. Number one, healed, but number two, he sees his son educated. He says, my son will know what's in the books. And in this way, he kind of puts the salvation of the entire community on his son's shoulders because he's like, my son is going to go and he's going to read what's in the books. He's going to know what's in the books and he's going to bring that knowledge back and he's going to save our village, right? He's going to bring wealth to all of us. And the third thing he sees is an image of power and control. He sees himself holding a rifle. These are the things that the pearl shapes for his future. It's a new hope that he has, this hope and the wealth that he has found. And basically, the rest of the story is actually about the evil that comes into his life as a result of finding the pearl. What happens is people hear about this pearl. They hear about its wealth and its value, and they come to take it from him. He is injured. His wife is injured. All of these awful things happen to them. Um, him and his wife, become, uh, they become at odds with one another because his wife uh, says to him, I see the evil that this pearl has brought in. You should go throw it back in the sea. And he says, no. We're going to make this future that I envision come true. He commits himself to that. And so there's this scene where his wife steals the pearl, and she goes to throw it back into the sea, and he stops her. And they have a terrible interaction. And then, and then he is like running back to his village. He's running back to his hut. And he's attacked by a man on the road. And he kills this man. And this, this is where the story really goes. Kind of, kind of takes a, a, a turn for the worse. And so him and his wife and his son, who's been healed at this point, uh, they hit the road. They got to get out of town because Kino is, has murdered a man. He's killed a man. And so they, they leave town. They head towards the mountains. And there are three hunters that come looking for them in the pearl. And, and they catch up to them, and Kino goes down to deal with these three hunters, and he kills all three of them, but not before they kill his son. Uh, and it's the, the worst part of the story. It's, it's awful. It's beautifully written, but it's awful. Okay? And, and so these men kill his son, and so him and his wife, they walk back to the village, uh, and it's like a funeral processional. These people walk behind them. They know what's gone on. And so they walk to the embankment of the sea where Kino found the pearl originally. And Kino offers the pearl to his wife to throw. And she says, no, you have to throw this evil uh, that you brought into our family. You have to throw it back into the sea. Uh, and Kino looks into the pearl one, one last time. And this is the second time where he begins to envision his future in the pearl. And he looked into it to see himself with wealth again. He looked into it to see his son studying. He looked into it to see him and his wife finally married. And he sees none of those things. He sees only the evil it has brought. The men that he has killed with his own hands and his son who did not make it through the journey. Sometimes the thing that we put our hope in the deepest is not always what is best for us. Sometimes the good that we anticipate most with our life is not what's best for us, but, but this good thing that we anticipate, this hope that we try to build in our life, it shapes our future. Our hope shapes our future. It gives us fresh vision of it. In Kino's case, obviously, it was these visions of grandeur that only ended in evil. 
But the walk of the Christian is this, is that as we look to Christ, Christ himself, the pearl of the world, the treasure of the world, and we begin to look into that story, and we allow it to shape our vision and our future, what we see is something so much different than the images Kino saw. We don't have to see images of power or control or wealth or money. We no longer need to see those things because we see a new creation, a new creation that has passed all of those things, a new creation that is built on the forgiveness that Christ came to bring on a reconnected soul to God. It is the new humanity. It is new creation. It is God's grace unleashed to every single one of us. It is a, a, a community of believers living in harmony with one another, not being afraid of submission to one another. It is us finally realizing our identity as the royal priesthood, chosen generation, holy nation, these spiritual temples offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. It's, it's a land that is full of the knowledge of God as the sea is filled with water. That's how Isaiah depicts it. That is the future it envisions for us. That is this living hope that we look into and it begins to build a fresh vision of what humanity is supposed to be. It's no longer about crawling over one another to see who is better, to see who has more, to see who can last longer. It's about the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, Jesus in the Gospel of John says that the knowledge of the Lord, that is eternal life. Jesus knew this living hope. And that's what he looked into. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Let us fix our eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. It says, for the joy set before him. The joy set before him. That's why Jesus was able to walk through suffering. This living hope that he knew, and he knew he was coming to bring to all men, he knew that that vision of the future was worth walking through the suffering that he was in. Jesus' imagination of this new world and this new creation, this joyful work that was set before him, that God was sending him for, is shaped by Scripture itself. His, his imagination of what the new world was going to be wasn't just something of a pipe dream. It wasn't just something that he made up. This is something that was formed in him. Just the same way that we're, we're allowing these words today to form us, he was formed by Scripture. And so in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance and to comfort all those who mourn. This is the scripture that Jesus announces in his ministry with in Luke chapter four. He goes into the synagogue and he says, this scripture is fulfilled before your very eyes on this day, that he has come for the year of the Lord's favor and to comfort those who mourn, to bring freedom to the captives and to proclaim the good news, the good news to each and every one of us. This was what his imagination of the, of the new creation was like. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, uh, that we'll read again in just a moment, uh, but, it, but it also kind of walks along this line. It says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God that he might bring you to God. That was the joy set before him as a reunion of, of our humanity, our souls, all of who we are with the God that he was serving, with the God that he also is. 
that's this fresh vision, this fresh new future for us that we see in the living hope. And just as kind of like, um, it's kind of honorable mention is Isaiah chapter 11 uh, has a depiction of the new world and of new creation of a redeemed earth. Uh, and it's one that Jesus kind of plays on a lot when he is speaking. If, if you really read into what he's saying and the images that he uses, a lot of them come from this chapter of Isaiah. But it envisions the new creation. And here's, here's what it sounds like. It sounds like the wolf lying down with the lamb. And it sounds like a lion eating grass alongside a calf. And it sounds like a, a little boy sticking his hand into a viper or a cobra's pit and not being hurt. And all of these images maybe seem like strange or weird to us. But it's the idea that all of creation is finally in synergy again. It's that all of creation is finally honoring God again. There's no violence to be found. There's no violence to be had. There's no destructiveness in our earth. That's what a redeemed creation looks like. And it says that's where that image in Isaiah comes from. It's, it's that the whole earth would be filled of the knowledge of God as the sea is filled with water. This is the imagination of Jesus. That is what he's shaped by. And that's the joy that he envisions when he goes to the cross. That's the vision this living hope gives for us. It provides us with new vision. And I've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but it's because of this joy set before him that Jesus was able to even walk through suffering. And that's the second idea. This living hope gives us endurance. Living hope gives us endurance. It was for these things that Jesus was able to suffer on the cross and be willing to give his life for the rest of us. These are the good things. This vision of the future, that was the good he was in anticipation of, and it carried him through deep, deep distress, deep suffering. This living hope is what gives endurance to the trials that we will face also. And in this way, hope is like the balm for suffering. When we walk through difficulty, when we walk through the various trials of our lives, there is there is a healing mechanism that God has built into the human experience. It is hope. It is the salve we put on our wounds. It's the balm for our suffering. It's like putting aloe vera on a sunburn, right? When you have a sunburn and you put aloe vera on it, it doesn't heal you immediately, nothing like that, but it's like that cool rush sensation, that sensitivity that we have to, to that aloe vera working in our burn, right? And in the same way with hope, hope doesn't just disregard the problem. It doesn't just, you know, cover it with a mat or something. It doesn't make the problem go away, but it begins to heal us. It, it shows us that there is a reason for our suffering, that there is something we are walking towards that makes this suffering all the more worth it. We will not have to experience this suffering in the new creation with Christ. We won't have to. And that's the hope we have that when we walk through deep difficulty, this hope is what sits with us, and it's what we rub our wounds with. It's what we put back into our body because that is the vision we have for the future. It's a beautiful way to think about this, that Peter's call in this text in verse 16 is to defend the hope we have, give a reason for the defense of the hope that you have. And it's a beautiful image that as we defend this hope, this hope begins to defend us. As we defend this hope, it does its work in our lives. It shapes us. It gives us reason to walk through suffering. That's a beautiful gospel for us today. The beautiful good news is that the living hope we have in Jesus gives us endurance, but it defends us as we defend it. It's the balm for our suffering. It's what we put into our, into our wounds to help us heal. In Isaiah, or I'm sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, 
I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. I apologize. I'm not going to read that first Peter verse. Sorry, guys, in the back. I'm skipping to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31. It says this. He, being God, God gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. And even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. When our hope is in the Lord, he renews us. He gives us a deeper hope. He reminds us of this living hope. And this hope does a work in our heart that actually shows up in our defense of it. It's a beautiful image that that the hope that we commit ourselves to also changes us and commits itself to us. We defend the hope that we have with the attitude it shapes within us. And this is what 1 Peter 3.16 says about that. It says, yet do this, defend that hope with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. The way that we develop an attitude of gentleness is respect is by knowing that we don't have to be in full control of our lives. We can respect and be gentle with anyone because we, we, don't ha- we no longer have a need for control. It's because of this living hope in our life. We know the future that we're headed towards. We know the victory of the cross and the past, the present, and the future. Like I said before, we don't have to white-knuckle our decisions. We can treat people with gentleness and reverence and respect. The hope that we defend also builds that attitude within us of gentleness and respect. And the hope we defend was never made to offend. That's what this idea of gentleness and respect is about. The hope we defend was never made to offend. Now, I know there's like this really common phrase and really commonly used idea, in, in especially in the tradition of Christianity that I've grown up in, and it's that the gospel is offensive. And I would probably agree with that statement. The gospel can absolutely be offensive to people. It points out that we're not perfect. It points out that we have sin in our lives, that we're not the best people all the time, right? It is absolutely offensive to us. Does it give us grace? Does it offer us mercy? Yes, But we can't accept those things if we don't come to terms with uh, the brokenness of who we are. And so absolutely, the gospel can be offensive. It points out our wrongdoings. But the hope that we have, the living hope of Jesus, was never made to offend. That hope was made to be shared. That hope was made to be given away. The great Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we are compelled to share the gospel out of generosity and love, not out of guilt. This is never designed, the hope of Christ is never designed to put us into a position of authority or, or, or superiority to anybody else. It's not made to do that. It's made for us to give other people hope. As we come to the end of our time together, there's one more idea that I want to explore. We've talked about how this living hope gives us fresh vision for the future, how it gives us endurance for the trials and suffering that we walk through. Uh, But the last thing I want to talk about is that this living hope is symbolized in baptism. It's symbolized in baptism. Let me read 1 Peter 3, and we'll read verses um, 18 through 22. We'll make up a little of the ground there. Verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through the water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, but as the removal of dirt from the body, but the, sorry, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. This passage of scripture is argued over all the time. Uh, it can be confusing. It can be kind of like, like strange sounding, especially in comparison with the theology of Paul, all those things. There are a couple different ways to uh, understand this passage or to interpret this passage. If you have questions, thoughts, concerns, we can talk about it at another point in time. For what we're talking about today, I want us to see that hope corresponds to baptism. And that is, is very obviously part of the passage, okay? Hope corresponds to baptism. baptism. Baptism is the image and the invitation we have into this living hope. Baptism is the image of the hope we have. It's the physical thing we do to signify the spiritual reality of what we walk through with this living hope. In baptism, we are saved through the waters. Okay, this is the terminology of Peter here. And what he means by this, he is tying together baptism with a common motif for the Israelite people and one that we can now identify with as followers of Jesus. That's why he ties it back to Noah. And in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, Noah's story is told. And, and many of you probably know the story of Noah. But Noah <clears throat> is chosen by God. He's a preacher for the Lord. Uh, God chooses him and his family to be saved as God cleanses the earth because there is no good on the earth anymore. Noah and his family are saved because of their faithfulness to the Lord. And they are saved through the water, this purifying water that came across the earth, right? But this is not the first or the only time, sorry, it is the first time, it is not the only time that the Israelite people are, quote, saved through the water. This is a common motif and image for the people. Uh, in the Exodus, when Moses comes to take the people out of Egypt, he takes them out of slavery and out of bondage. He leads them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted for them, and the Israelite people are, quote, saved through the water, right? They are led through their salvation, so to speak. And then this happens one more time in the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua leads the people and also splits the water of the Jordan River, okay? And this is uh, another image of the people being saved through the water. They pass through the water into the blessing that God has for them, the, which, is, which at that time was the promised land, the land of Israel as we would know it today. Now, all of these ideas and motifs are actually repeated. They're like a melody that we constantly come back to in Scripture being saved through the water. And this is part of the image that John the Baptist uses when he baptizes people to save them through the water. This is the image of Jesus also being baptized, right? This is the idea that he is also joining this community of people who are the new Exodus people. They are saved through the water. And in the same way, we reflect that image. Yes, uh, a lot of the time what you'll hear in like uh, baptism sermons is that we are buried in the likeness of Christ and raised in his image, all right? And that's, that is absolutely a beautiful image. That's one that Paul talks about in Romans, but it's also tying us back to this idea that it's all through the Old Testament is that we are also new Exodus people. We are returning from exile from God. We are coming back to Yahweh God, the God that Jesus came to be representative of the grace of, okay? We are also saved through the waters. And that's not a theological statement about like salvation itself. It is this image of hope that we raise into. It's an image of hope. And just as kind of an invitation today, we baptized uh, on the last weekend of every month. And maybe, I don't know if that is something you're interested in or a next step you are wanting to take, uh, to take up this image of hope and then be baptized. We, I would love to talk to you about that. We do that on the last weekend of every month. Uh, but, but this hope, 
of being saved, sorry, uh, this hope of what we're being saved through the water signifies is something that ties us back to the entire story of the Bible, and that is God ransoming and restoring and redeeming his good world. And so baptism, what Peter says here in the passage, baptism is both an image and an invitation into living hope. It's an image and an invitation into living hope. And his call is the same as mine today, is take on this living hope. Take on this living hope that will give you a new vision for what the future is supposed to be, a new vision for what humanity is supposed to be, a new vision for what following Jesus and living life this side of eternity is supposed to look like and supposed to be. Allow this living hope to be the balm for your suffering, the thing that you run to when the world is, is tormenting us or persecuting you. Run to this living hope. It is offered freely before you. And this is not just uh, an invitation for somebody who, who has never known the hope of Jesus. This is an invitation for everyone who is here. Living hope is just as much for the sinner who needs saving as it is for the sinners who have already been saved. It is for every one of us to look back, remind ourselves, what is this living hope? It's the new creation that Jesus came to bring and he has already completed. He is the firstborn of the new creation. That's what Paul says in Colossians. We rise up as his brothers and sisters in that faith. He's the firstborn of that creation, and we follow him because of this living hope. When you are walking through suffering, remember your hope. Bow your heads with me this morning.